This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Bob Summerwell has been developing the C++ Ethereum client since July last year. His background is primarily in game development, but he spent a short time in finance as a solutions architect, giving him a unique insight into development and culture across these fields. Today we look primarily at the importance of C++, but I took the chance to ask Bob a few questions that have been accumulating over the past week. Hey, so thanks so much for joining me, Bob. This, it's quite funny the way this came about because I had someone ask me if they put, if I could put them in touch with you to talk about Light Client. <laughs> this is going to be a really choppy interview because I've got a ton of little odds and ends questions that I thought you might be the person to ask. Well, but, no problem. But to start with, how about you just introduce yourself and explain your work in the Ethereum space? Yeah, for sure. No problem. So yeah, hi, my name's Bob Summerwell. I've been a professional software developer for nearly 20 years now, mainly in the games industry. Uh, I'm originally from the UK. I live in Canada now, been here 13 years. And most of that time's in games, video games. And the majority of that working for EA Sports, um, doing FIFA, NBA, NHL, and so on. But yeah, the last couple of years, I've been working for myself. Did a variety of different things. Really started out with mobile, looking at mobile. Got really excited about mobile. And during that period as well, I, I met a guy called David Lowy, who is now a good friend of mine here in uh, Vancouver, who has been into crypto for a long, long time. And he dragged me along to a meetup. And this will have been in very early 2014. So the Ethereum white paper was out, but nothing had really happened yet. You know, a lot more of the talk at that time was really more about sort of Ripple and colored coins and so on. And, you know, I just kind of went on with my life. Um, but then last year, I ended up working in Toronto for six years for TD Securities. So working for a bank in the heart of darkness. And uh, while I was there, I took the opportunity of, uh, of going along to some meetups because Toronto is, you know, it's uh, crypto central, really. And, uh, you know, I kind of picked up that thread again got really quite excited about Ethereum and my, my mobile had moved on to wearables. So, uh, you know, really starting to get into smartwatches. And I thought, how cool would it be to, you know, to have Ethereum run on a smartwatch? So I started working on, on that last July. I was still working full time. So I found Anthony Cross, who I met at one of the meetups. And, you know, he really got that one kicked off. And then it just sort of grew and grew and grew. And then towards the tail end of last year, where there were the, the, the cuts in funding to the C++ team, I just kind of talked to Vitalik and some others and said, well, hey, you know, who's, you know, maybe I can help out a bit on the C++ client. And I started helping out a little bit there. And then that turned into a, a part-time contract. And then it turned into a full-time contract. And now I'm, uh, I'm working full-time on, on Ethereum for the foundation. When you refer to the bank, <laughs> working for a bank as being in the heart of darkness, what is it about Ethereum that inspired you to make the switch from, you know, well, I guess professional video game developer working in uh, in bank bank software and uh, <laughs> financial software, and yeah. then uh, and then working on Ethereum? Well, my job there was the first ever job I'd had that was a suit and tie job. Right, <laughs> since I was twenty one, I've just rocked up in jeans and t shirt, and you know, I've never really been in a 
suit and tie kind of environment. It was quite ironic, really, because the, the, the role that I had there was really, it was really about doing proper software development. It was really that uh, they'd got an internal cloud and they wanted to basically have a, you know, a, a smooth delivery pipeline, right? They wanted to be able to develop stuff faster. They wanted to move from slow waterfall, old style development to something quicker and more normal, really. So it's quite ironic, but it turns out that in video games, you're actually like, better at that stuff. They don't really have a, a culture of software development. You know, they're all about the finance. Most of them are MBAs or finance degree people, and they don't really have that culture of software development. So anyway, while I was there, I really got an insight into, you know, how prone for disruption all this stuff is. The, the status quo in the financial industry, because I, you know, I talked to a lot of people from different organizations. I did a lot of mingling in that area while I was there. And the status quo for software and systems in the financial industry is, is it's dreadful. It's just absolutely dreadful, right? <laughs> Everything that you could imagine is in there, you know. You've got these mainframes running COBOL. They were written 30, 40 years ago. They've been through thousands of hands. Nobody really understands how it all works. They're terrified of touching anything. You know, you don't want to break anything. You don't want to break all these transfers. And, and yeah, I mean, it, what you see happening with, with R3 and uh, building that, I really understand why that is happening. You can't fix what's there you have to build a new one around the outside. And I mean, that's obviously why they're, you know, they're trying to, uh, to basically build a new tech base. But beyond that, it, it really sort of highlighted that if you look at the requirements of what they're doing, you know, it's not very complicated, really, the software they have. You've just got balances and you're moving balances around and it's really at its core. It's not tremendously complicated stuff. There's lots of regulations and standards and blah, 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 and legacy, but it, it, it shouldn't have to be that way. And I think that, that blockchain has just got tremendous potential for just blowing the whole thing away. You know, really, uh, so much of, of what they have is, you know, that they have monopolies and they have regulation and they've got those sort of artificial moats and that's what keeps them going. It's not that they're delivering value or doing good stuff though you do see some of that, generally they, they make their money because they're the only people that are allowed to. Pretty bleak. Pretty, I mean, I guess that's a really, I mean, that's the insight that you inevitably get when working for such an entrenched industry. Right, right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard to iterate your, your way out of such a situation, right? There are lots of efforts underway. You know, they're, they're spending a bunch of money on, innovation labs and you know fintech collaborations and so on but uh it's really hard to steer a cruise ship coming from there and then now you're moving into ethereum for mobile devices and i mean mm -hmm. to me or, or at wearables and uh and these ultralight clients this to me kind of looks very much like what slocket's doing with the internet of things is there some relationship there yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all the same sort of thread, right? I mean, I think maybe one of the first things that we saw on that line was all the, you know, the project adapt stuff from IBM and Samsung, the washing machine buying its own detergent and so on. That was probably a, it was quite a while ago, right? That was probably about 18 months ago that that demo came out. And then I understand, you know, that group then went into that IBM MTM demo that was at Dev1. 
uh, DevCon 1, sorry, and then talking to some of those guys again, that's now been relabeled as Blue Horizon, but it's kind of a continuation of the same sort of thing. And then you had Slocket coming in. I mean, also, you know, F-Core really want to have a, you know, a client that's really suitable for, for IoT. And, you know, and then uh, John Garrett with F-Embedded and then myself. There's obviously a lot of need for that. And I've, I think what that really boils down to is that, you know, in terms of having a, you know, a working full client on a desktop, you know, there's obviously that's where most of the effort's been with F and Geth and then, you know, missed coming to completion. And then, you know, efforts then to, to slim that down, both with pruning and then ultimately like client. But, you know, coming back to my own interest in mobile, m- mobile, it is computers for most people now. If you, if you look across the world, there are billions of smartphones. And that, that is what computers are for most people. We are in a mobile first world where even given a choice, you know, even if you have a laptop, you know, maybe you're just sitting on your sofa with your iPad, with your smartphone. And that's going to be an ongoing trend is that there is huge, huge growth, both in mobiles and then wearables and then, you know, IoT and smart devices of all kinds. And that's going to be an ongoing accelerating trend where really, you know, desktop PCs, you know, they're kind of, they're really dying because you can do nearly anything that you'd want to do, most people, you know, on an iPad, on a phone. If you're a software developer, if you're doing, you know, some spreadsheety things, for sure you you want a full keyboard, you want a big screen. But I mean, even there, the line is blurring, right? If you look at something like, you know, Ubuntu Convergence. So the first Convergence device was revealed at uh, at MWC in March this year. And I've got one. It's 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 UPS today. I'm going to get it later today. (laughs) But yeah, what you've got there is... Here's a tablet, but it can turn into a full laptop, right? You can, if you connect a Bluetooth keyboard, Bluetooth mouse, you know, it will flip into a desktop mode. You can have a, uh, an HDMI output on it. And, you know, in not very long at all, that story is going to be the case uh, with mobile. If you look at top spec mobile devices now, you know, they're often opto core, getting on for two, three, four gig of memory. 1080p or better resolution you know that they're, they're really capable devices they're pretty much in the same category as as laptops were not so long ago or even you know games consoles going back to the games area the the line between console gaming and mobile gaming is as as utterly blurred over the last few years the the best mobile games you know they're 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 up there you know they're not some throwaway joke thing my final game that I worked on at EA, for example, was uh, UFC Mobile. So, you know, uh, Ultimate Fighting, you know, MMA game on mobile. And we actually shared the code between Xbox One, PS4, down to, to iPhone and Android. It's the same code base spanning, you know, down to some pretty older spec phones. But yeah, the, the gap is really closing. And the gap's closing um, between browser and native as well you know if you look at uh webgl uh games or you know asm.js or or WebAssembly, you know you see these demos from like unity and unreal that are like hey here's quake running in a browser and it's like what (laughs) but it totally it totally can so uh yeah you know devices are becoming very very capable and up and down that range you know there's not 
you know, there's not, there's not the range of difference there that there was. So, I mean, obviously, when you get down to, to smaller devices, you obviously are more sensitive to, uh, you know, how much memory you've got and bandwidth and so on. And, I mean, that's really where, you know, having a true light client is going to come in. But, you know, there's no reason whatsoever why you shouldn't be able to run a, you know, an Ethereum light client on a watch. And, you know, that isn't just a, oh, I'm talking to a trusted server, but I'm not really doing anything. That's, no, I'm, I'm running a client. You know, I'm autonomous. And where that's going to be incredibly interesting is in that IoT sort of smart devices area, right? You know, you see these numbers that we've had for years of Gartner surveys and things, you know, that there's going to be whatever, 50 billion smart devices by, by 2020 or, or, or even more. And uh, I really believe that. You know, the costs are coming down and down and down. And uh, it's utterly possible that you can have a little, uh, you know, a little system on a chip that only costs a few bucks. But it's a 32-bit processor, reasonable amount of memory, internet connected. If you add the power of, uh, of Ethereum into that so that it can actually, you know, do commerce... It can actually spend money, you know, it can actually do things. The emergent power there, I think, is amazing, which is why so many people are, are looking at this area. This, it's interesting you use, the, um, you use the term emergent because I've been speaking with a friend, Carl Flush. He's, uh, he's, a pretty, he's a really brilliant guy and he's uh, developing over at Consensus. And he, um, he described Ethereum as the internet of autonomous agents yep. and how when you have a bunch of autonomous agents interconnected, those numerous connections and, uh, and the feedback loops that they create uh, lead to this, these emergent systems that, um, that are incredibly powerful. And, and it yep. sounds like that's something you're... Um, you know, you're, you're pursuing with your kind of ultra small scale and uh, internet of things. Yeah. Work. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that absolutely is the case, right? And it, it's kind of analogous to, you know, permissionless innovation. So permissionless innovation is really talking about that building these new building blocks, you know, you're not having to go and ask permission. You're not having to go and get an account at so-and-so or go and have some negotiation, you know, hey, Google, am I allowed to use your API to get at your map thing or whatever? It's just, well, hey, here's, here's some pieces and put them together however you like. So, I mean, you know, that, that is an emergent pattern in itself in terms of the capabilities of the things that are available. But what, you, what you're having where you move more to this sort of, you know, this agent model is, it, you know, it's really talking about instances of things, and saying, well, hey, you know, you want to spin up, hey, here's a little device and it, you know, it's got some sensors and it does something and sends some things around. You can just make these new ones, right? You can just plop them in and, and off they go. You're not having to do this forward planning where you're saying, okay, so how many of these are we going to have? Okay, so this will be the bandwidth and then we've got to get a server that can talk to them and then, you know, and then what, how are they going to be connected? And, you know, like none of that. You just plop them in and they go and find each other and they go and do stuff, right? You, you know, again, it's another form of, of decentralization. And I think that's the reason that that trend is, is happening and that you see that as an ongoing theme in, in IoT is, is it's just the scale. You know, if you do get up to like 50 billion devices, they can't all talk to the same server. It doesn't matter if you've got the biggest server farm in the world. It just ain't going to happen. So you can't work on that kind of model anymore. It's just impossible, you know, the bandwidth and everything. So, you know, another term that you'll hear for this is, is edge computing. 
which is really talking about, you know, you're getting away from a, a bit of an old-fashioned kind of client-server model because it can't scale. You can't have 50 billion clients and one server. So what that really means is ultimately you may have the server, but you can't have all of the clients waiting for a specific server. It's just infeasible. They, they need to go and do stuff. Maybe you have to reconcile some things later, but you really you have to go to this model where everything is working fairly autonomously, and then at a slower cadence, stuff is feeding back really from the edge towards the center. That's kind of the language that you'll hear. And you've maybe got some latency there. So if you say something like, you know, hey, I'm a sensor, and I'm measuring the UV level somewhere for something, it may be recording that value every second, but nobody cares about that, really. You maybe want a, a slower cadence. So really, you can't have a model of, of sort of dumbness pushing things into a center and the center makes the decision. The edges need to do their own stuff and, you know, feed some subset of that back. You know, if they need help, if they need to talk to someone to coordinate, they can. But you've really got this kind of uh, sort of layers and latency where... You don't wait for the center to make a decision. Nothing can wait for the center to make a decision because that's not scalable. You, you need to do things as autonomously as you can, and then they slowly kind of filter back. So it's, it's, it's a very different kind of computing model, really. So tell me about DoubleThink. Okay, so DoubleThink, it's my corporation. It really exists purely for tax purposes. It's me. I'm DoubleThink. I both for that and, you know, my previous company, which is called Kitsilano Software, I have uh, hired contractors to do work for me sometimes. So that was the case with Anthony. But, but yeah, it's essentially me. It's the vehicle for me to, to do contracting, consultancy, and so on. So at the foundation, for example, I'm a, I'm a contractor. I am providing service to them. The project that there is ongoing really in, in DoubleThink is, is really just, you know, the Ethereum for resource-constrained devices that was originally just me me doing the work or me paying for the work. But then I applied for a, a block grant in February of this year and got one from the Chinese blockchain company, Blockchain Lab. And uh, so that's nice. So uh, that's, that's kind of my sideline is, as well as my ongoing work for the foundation, on the side, I'm uh, bringing it to resource-constrained devices. There is no grand vision right now for DoubleThink. I don't have any uh, any real revenue generation plans or anything. I've got lots of ideas of things that I might do in the future, but for right now, I'm building foundations. I already asked you this on Twitter, but these terms keep, or these phrases keep coming up. Okay. And I have never heard them formally defined, and so I was glad to actually have someone give me a, uh, a good... Um, a good explanation of them. And those were solutions architect and systems architect. Ah, yes. Solutions architect was my job title at TD Securities. It's kind of a bit of a made-up silly thing that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess essentially what, what that really is talking about is uh, looking at a given set of problems and working out what kind of solutions there might be for them. So, I mean, that often means... Okay, you know, we want to build a system that does a blur. Well, you know, <laughs> what kind of things might there be? What kind of existing things are there on the market? What do you want to consider? So it's kind of uh, very high level kind of, um, yeah, you, you could do it like this and this and this, and here are the bits, and this is what you're going to aim towards. I mean, systems architect is maybe a bit clearer. 
what that really, um, well, there's, there's maybe two different forms of that, but the, where I would call myself a systems architect is really, it's big picture stuff. So it's like, what's the block diagram of this thing? You know, what are the different parts? How is this system composed? So there's a bit that does this, and there are tests here that use that, and there's a web app that talks to this. So it's really um, physical architecture of composition. How is this thing going to fit together? What are the parts and making sure that it's suitably decoupled and that you can test the bits in isolation and that you've got a release plan? I mean, systems programming is more, you know, lower level kind of, you know, writing operating system, writing drivers and things. So, I, you know, I guess some people may use the term system architect to talk about that kind of stuff as well. Well, it does have the, the word architect in it. It has right. this kind of, um, you know, I've been reading The Fountainhead. And, uh, oh, and- yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I figured I figured that was mandatory reading for coming to the states. So, um, so and it has that illustrious kind of uh, that illustrious. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a bit of a funny term as well, architect, because I think you know back in the day, IBM days, you'd have the you know it'd be this very formal kind of you know I am the architect and I will basically make the blueprints and honestly they use the word blueprints that's that's a, a, a term that is used in software architecture as well but in the worst you know old school waterfall kind of style it really is that kind of role right it really is an ivory tower kind of like here's my blueprints here's my design now you know you minions go off and make this uh, yeah it sounds like a term like or a phrase like systems architect is a holdover from a different, well, like the uh, the hierarchical age as opposed to the the um, yeah. more organic age of of organization that we're used to, or the organic style right. of organization that we're used to. Yeah, yeah, and 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 yeah, it, it really can be that bad old way, right? Is here you are, here is my grand plan, right? Go and do this, but it doesn't work. <laughs> Well, it's my plan, make it work, you know. <laughs> so really, that, that's not a good architect. A good modern architect is, well, it's, it's a role more than a job. I mean, that's another kind of pattern that you see, you know, in software development now is that if you have a good, modern, agile team, people have roles more than they have titles. You know, titles really aren't very important. Roles are important. You know, you've got particular types of things that have to happen, Right. You know, and certain people are good at some things and certain people are good at others. Everyone's got to be able to do a bit of everything. But, but yeah, in a, in a more progressive kind of software development environment, probably, you know, architecture is more of a, a role that different people might do at different times. Or maybe you've got a guy who kind of, you know, is sort of mainly your architect. But that doesn't mean they don't do other stuff as well. It's more of a specialism than a, well, it, it, it shouldn't be a hierarchical siloed thing. Because, yeah, silos are terrible. <laughs> okay, so the two other questions I have, which almost are one, I'm looking at this awesome uh, dependencies graph uh-huh. that you've got on uh, on DoubleThink. You've got uh, the solidity, you've, or you know, to the far right, there's this sectioned off solidity dependencies yeah. section. And I noticed that that's quite, um, that's quite removed from everything else and doesn't have so many interdependencies with other stuff. And I remember yeah. you said that Solidity had almost been separated from Ethereum. Now, yes, this to me that, is like, that. this seems to be quite a significant thing because, I mean, Solidity is a language that's designed for writing decentralized decentralized software or software that's designed to run in a decentralized environment. Yeah. 
And so that has to have very specific, I mean, I'm totally non-technical, but to me, that must have specific, uh, be a very unique environment, nothing like the monolithic compute architecture that is uh, sitting on my lap right now. So can you explain the significance of, uh, of yeah, spinning Solidity I, off? Yeah. And also this uh, I, big... I, I can. Yeah, I can. So um, really, all of that started with, with trying to do, uh, you know, Ethereum for, for the smartwatch. I started that back last year. You know, I, I very rapidly, you know, came to the realization that, that, you know, the Go team have got their shit together, right? You know, they're fine. They don't need my help. Peter's been doing the, uh, the experimental iOS and Android uh, libraries and uh, ARM Linux and so on, you know, for quite a few months now. But really, for my tiny computer scenario, it's really C++ was needed. You know, C and C++ are the languages which every operating system, all low-level drivers, compilers, you know, everything is written in these. For all the new languages that come along and however old-fashioned they are and blah, 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 yeah, but they're still what you use. And it's kind of hard. You know, yeah, you've got a, 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 a quite a learning curve and they're not nice to work with, but that's fine because I've been doing it for years. That's not a problem. <laughs> so what I started doing is, you know, that's where, where the cross-builds came in. I'm doing a, a, a double thing. Now, a cross-build is uh, a build on one type of computer for running on another. So you don't compile on a watch. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're going to build and compile your code on a desktop machine for uh, a watch. So as I started building up this, this cross-compile support on C++, I had to understand, well, you know, how does the C++ code base fit together? You know, you hear about... CPP Ethereum and F and Web3 and, you know, and Solidity and, and Mix and Aleph. And it's like, well, what are all these things? How do they all fit together? And uh, so I started building this diagram. So this diagram has been ongoing for months and months, right? It's, you know, it is my own discovery of that code base. Anyway, on joining the foundation and the, the reboot of the C++ team that's happened under Christian's leadership, right? You know, that... Uh, a lot of the original C++ team have moved on now. Gavin uh, started uh, F-Core and uh, ArcPAR and, uh, and Debris went over there. And then Slocket started. So then uh, Christoph and, uh, and Lefteris went there. So the C++ team has been on this, uh, on this reboot under Christian. So Christian, you know, was working on Solidity. And then, you know, Mix and the C++ side came into that. Anyway, as part of that reboot, Decoupling these tools has been incredibly important. And it's really because all of those different C++ tools, you know, they're all sort of tied together. They've had to be all released at the same time. Getting a new Solidity release out, you know, that's been a, well, that's a new F release at the same time. You know, and you're getting a new Mix release and you're getting a new Aleph. And a lot of that really is just because some architectural work hadn't happened yet, right? And that's my thing. That's what I do. So for the last couple of months, we've been actively working to, to pull these parts, you know, these pieces uh, apart. And it's, you know, it's nearly there. And so, I mean, what that will mean for Solidity is very soon Solidity will not depend on F at all. It won't be tied in to that C++ consensus engine. You know, it will be a standalone, here's a compiler tool, and you've got the, you know, the Solidity language spec. You've got the the bytecode in the in the blockchain spec. It, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't have a tie into the specific uh, F C plus plus runtime. And I mean, it doesn't. 
when you actually run the outputs, but the tool itself has been tied in. So very soon, we're going to have those pieces decoupled so that releases of air, releases of mix, releases of solidity, you know, all of those pieces are going to be... Uh, are going to become independent. And what that means is that they can happen at whatever cadence makes sense, right? We can choose, well, how much effort are we going to pour into this bucket, into that bucket? And that independence also makes it a lot easier to test. So the other element to that is at Homestead, we went through a real sanitizing of language phase. Because if you if you look on that C++ side, right, there were so many different terms. You know, F, F++, Turbo Ethereum, um, <laughs> Hardcore Ethereum, Ethereum SDK, oh, sorry, uh, Ethereum Dev Kit, I saw, Web3, Web3 Umbrella. You know, it's just incredibly confusing, let alone for new people. You know, they, they come in and it's like, what's going on? So the, the language, we simplified all of that back down for Homestead. So it's, it's CPP Ethereum and F, that's it, right? All the other stuff, yeah, no. Um, the other part that's going to be happening that on that is um, reorganizing on the GitHub side. So it's really a return home. So F and, and an F minor and F key are going to get, move back into the CPP Ethereum repo. So, you know, if you want Go, it's Ethereum Go Ethereum. If you want C++, it's Ethereum CPP Ethereum. I remember um, hearing that uh, that Eris is actually developing using Solidity. Yeah, so is right. this because Solidity is this uh, this... Awesome, uh, awesome distributed computing language, and it has some independence from all of these. Because I notice it has dependencies here. Do they need to have the Ethereum client to develop using Solidity? So, I mean, Ethereum is just one of a number of blockchain solutions that Eris incorporates. So Eris is really aiming to be, you know, kind of a blockchain toolkit kind of thing. So from what I've seen, you know, it's, it's kind of a one-click solution make an Ethereum blockchain, make a GAF, make a this, make a that. But yeah, what's happening there is, um, I don't know how you'd even say it, VOR0220. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, that uh, user account, Voice of Reason. So he uh, works for Eris, and he's actually working on Solidity. So uh, we are, he's kind of half a part of our team now. You know, really, Eris are, are funding Solidity development. But it is tied to Ethereum. So, what happens when Solidity is is completely separated? I mean, what, what are the uh, what are the consequences of that? Uh, it's really more of an internal thing for us. What what it really means is, I think what it really is going to mean longer term is that the foundation can spend more of its resources on Solidity and you know and Mix and other user tools, right? Independent of that being tied in with the C client. Because if you look, you know, Geth is so utterly, utterly dominant, right? You know, it's like 99% of nodes are, are, are running Geth. And, you know, obviously that won't be the case forever. We're having a reboot on F, and, you know, I think we're going to get some real, some real big improvements soon. And parity, obviously a lot of Geth are going into there. But really it's, it's, it's just chopping these things apart and saying you're going to have multiple of these clients, and that's one category of stuff. And you've got Web3.js, you know, the JSON RPC. But that's, that's one of the JSON RPCs. There's also, uh, you know, Net Ethereum, which is a .NET one. You're going to get Java JSON RPC. You, you know, there's a Ruby JSON RPC. I think you're going to have a real sort of flourishing of these different kind of categories of tools. And 
I mean, on the language side as well, you know, solidity, again, utterly, utterly dominant right now. But it wasn't always the case. You know, Serpent was very popular early on. And there'll be more languages. There was a thing a few weeks ago about somebody had started work on kind of like a, a legal language. You know, smart contract languages, they're just a kind of computer programming language. And Solidity is dominant right now, but there will be many. I'm sure there will be many. Hey, well, that's been really enlightening, Bob. I mean, I'm really stoked that you took the time to um, catch up. Is there anything else that we, that we can cover that you can think of that, uh, that the audience might be interested in? I'm going to OzCon in, in May, which is the open source conference, the O'Reilly one. Um, so that's in, in Austin in, in May. And what I'm setting up there is actually a meetup across multiple blockchain groups. So I contacted the meetup organizers for the Bitcoin one, for the Ethereum one, for a blockchain one generally. And it looks like we're going to have a big party. <laughs> so uh, Factum will be hosting. There'll be some IBM people there from Open Blockchain, obviously, you know, Ethereum and, uh, and Bitcoin people. I've been trying to contact people more generally from Hyperledger and from R3 because, yeah, I mean, that's something I'd really like to see more of is, uh, you know, obviously there's a ton of innovation happening within Ethereum, but there's lots going on elsewhere as well, right? You know, it's, a, it's an incredibly exciting time for blockchain innovation and, uh, I'd really love to understand what those guys are working on as well and see what makes sense for us. Sounds like it would be a real doge party. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so where can people find out more about your work and do you have any links or anything like that that you want uh, you like people to chase up? Yeah, for sure. So I'm very active on Twitter. So it's Bob Summerwill. So summer like the season and will as in write your will. BobSummerwill.com as well. Doublethink.co. Just come to find me. There's only, there's only one me in the world. It's very easy. Thanks, Bob. And thank you for listening to The Ether Review. Check out letstalkbitcoin.com for more episodes or follow us on Twitter at Ether Review. <laughs>